The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. So as I'm fond of saying, if you're interested in applying or making a donation, please contact me, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Speaking about talking with me, I have in the studio today Dr. Nick Wilborn. Dr. Wilborn is a longtime professor here at Greenville Seminary in church history, and he's also currently serving as the senior pastor at Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, part of the Tennessee Valley Presbytery of the PCA. Dr. Wilborn, thank you for joining me. Thanks. Good to be here. Today we're going to be talking about this year's edition of the Confessional Presbyterian Journal, a journal for discussion of Presbyterian doctrine and practice. It is in its 14th um, edition, its 14th year, 2018, and there's it's chock full of good articles. We're going to dig into its theme, the, the man featured on the cover, as well as some of the pieces inside. I don't want to spoil everything, because I, I want you to buy it and to read it for yourself as well. But before we do that, this is the first time I've had Dr. Wilborn uh, here on campus with me since uh, the passing into glory of a good friend of the seminary and longtime seminary professor with RTS, Dr. John DeWitt. And Dr. Wilborn, would you just say a word about Dr. DeWitt, the legacy he leaves, and particularly his service to the Church over many years? Sure, I'd be happy to. And it was a privilege for me to, to know Dr. DeWitt for a long time and then to be, to be considered a friend and, um, and to have him as a friend. Uh, I miss him already, uh, uh, similarly to the way I miss Dr. Smith and... Uh, I'll be doing, we'll talk more about this later, but I was just thinking the other day as I'm planning for our tour in January to go to Columbia and Charleston and take folks along. This will be my first time to go to First Pres Columbia since 2002 that he won't be there to participate. So it's a bit of a, a sad thought as I, uh, as I reflected on that. But uh, Dr. DeWitt, uh, was uh, a, a pretty remarkable man. I know comments were made at his at his funeral that uh, Dr. Derek Thomas uh, had the privilege uh, to preach. Uh, comments were made about his his mind, and he never forgot anything, and that was true right up until the end of his life. And uh, he was very blessed in that sense with a tremendous mind. He. Uh, he studied in in Holland. Uh, he, uh, while studying there, he lived with Hermann Ritterboss, who is 20th century, one of the foremost biblical theologians. His book on on um, the Apostle Paul is uh, is a remarkable book. Most people know his Coming of the Kingdom. But the the work on the theology of the Apostle Paul, which uh, Dr. DeWitt had a hand in, uh, is uh, is probably what he's most well known among theologians and biblical scholars. Talking about Dr. Ritterboss. Dr. Ritterboss, and uh, so because of a family relationship, Dr. DeWitt uh, was invited by uh, Professor Ritterboss to live with him while he did his Ph.D. work in the Netherlands. So he always had stories, and I would always ask him to tell a story or two when we'd go there in uh, Columbia. So we're going to miss that. Uh, he had some special treasures from the Ritterboss family. But, uh, of course, he was a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson for several years, first teaching church history and then systematics went on to Memphis to be the pastor at Second Presbyterian Church and helped that church through a transition period from a, a liberalized denomination uh, to a better situation for them. Uh, went to Seventh Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, where he was just absolutely at home with his, uh, his Dutch friends up there. And then uh, retired 
and uh, wanted to settle in South Carolina, which is where his wife was from, and he had pastored his first pastorate there. And uh, so he settled in the Columbia area, and uh, about that time, they were in need of a pulpit supply after a long pastorate, and Dr. DeWitt filled that, and uh, to no one's surprise much, they desired him to be their pastor, and so he was for five years or so, and uh, then was instrumental in encouraging the church and seeing the church call Sinclair Ferguson as their next pastor, and uh, became quite a student of uh, Old Columbia Seminary, as well as the history of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. Uh, just a, a remarkable man, always reading. Um, every time we'd talk on the phone, he'd ask if I'd read this or that. He was reading something new, had I read it. And uh, usually I had, but sometimes I hadn't, so it would be something I would, I would look to read. So, uh, yeah, as, uh, as people commented there uh, in Columbia at the day of his funeral, uh, he would be sorely missed. His Sunday school class is a pretty impressive thing at the funeral. Zach, uh, there on the main floor of the worship hall of First Presbyterian Church, I didn't count, but something in the range of the first 12 to 15 pews on the right-hand side of the building as you came in from the back, uh, were all filled by his Sunday school class, and uh, which he taught until just of recent. And uh, I had the privilege then last weekend, or two weekends ago now, to do a conference in um, the Tri-Cities area of Tennessee and one of the other speakers with me for this conference was a ruling elder from First Presbyterian Church, Ken Wingate. And Ken and I got to spend a good deal of time together, and and of course we enjoyed talking about our our mutual friend and and uh, fellow saint, Doctor Dewitt. And so uh, he'll be missed by many. The uh, the worship that took place at his funeral was was uh, was something he would have been thankful for and proud, and uh, and to see the house full of people there would have been humbling. He would have been amazed that so many people would have come out on a beautiful uh, Wednesday afternoon just to see him off in that uh, in that human way of speaking. I did not have a personal relationship with Dr. DeWitt. I met him once when I went on the Presbyterian Church History Tour several years ago, and he was a fine host to us there at First Presbyterian Church. But what I have noticed is uh, just how grateful people have been for his legacy and his writings, even remarking in the hallways here at the seminary and on in the halls of social media and, and, and different emails back and forth, uh, the impact or the influence that he's had on generations of, of reformed and reformedish individuals. And his, his work on the doctrines of grace very early on, uh, before it was a popular thing to write about, uh, really steered people in the right direction of, of biblical reform theology. Derek Thomas commented and actually read a portion, a rather lengthy portion, from his uh, little book that was published out of that series of sermons uh, on Amazing Grace, the the little Puritan, or it's not a Puritan paperback, but a modern Puritan paperback that uh, Banner of Truth produced called Amazing Grace. And if, if those listening have never read through those sermons, you, you've missed quite a bit and you'd be greatly edified by it. And, and that is still available. It you, is. You can get it at least secondhand, yeah. if not. Uh, yeah. If not. Yeah, it, it's it's fresh. easily available. Uh, and it, we should mention that he was many years uh, on the board of the Banner of Truth Trust. Uh, he was in his latter years. You know, when after he'd retired the second time, this time from not from Seventh Reform formed in Grand Rapids, but from First Pres in Columbia. 
Uh, he was then elected uh, moderator of the Synod the, of the ARP, his home church, the Associate Reformed Presbyterians, and uh, at a very pivotal time in their, in their history. And I, I know in visiting their Synod a couple of years ago, talking with people, uh, people still look back to that year as a benchmark. Uh, and his work, the way he handled the Synod meeting, uh, his uh, his his role as moderator in appointing some committees um, uh, played a very pivotal role in that in that communion. And he, uh, as I said, he kept up his reading right till the end. But he also stayed an active churchman right up till the end. And that's uh, that's something uh, to imitate for all of us. There's something to be said for running the race with endurance yeah. and right Absolutely. through the finish line. And um, our listeners that are subscribers to the Confessional Presbyterian will notice that there is an article in this year's edition called John DeWitt, New School Presbyterian at an Old School Seminary. I just want to point out that's a different yeah, John DeWitt. That's it is. a 19th century figure. Our, our beloved Dr. John DeWitt that we're talking about right now is you would not characterize him as a new school Presbyterian yeah. at an old school seminary. Um, so moving into the journal itself, the the reason why I've asked Dr. Wilborn to sit down with me to talk through this year's issue is twofold. One is out of convenience. He's here every other week for uh, our ancient church history class this semester. But secondly, and more to the point, he is one of the editors for this particular journal. The general editor and publisher is Mr. Chris Caldwell, who has made it his, uh, his, his, one of his missions in life to bring glory to God through the publishing of excellent materials that very few other people would be willing to take on the task of publishing. So Naphtali Press, as well as the Confessional Presbyterian Journal, are, are two, uh, two, I guess, expressions of this labor of love for Mr. Caldwell, and we're very thankful to him and grateful to him, really indebted to him for the great service he's done to the Church, and I've been grateful to also to see Reformation Heritage Books pick up uh, a bit of the slack along with him for the Naphtali Press uh, publications. But the Confessional Presbyterian has a, a number of editors, including Dr. Wilborn and Dr. Jeff Waddington, and then a series of assistant editors that regularly provide um, some peer review of the submissions to the journal. And in this particular edition, there is a theme on, I think, family religion, or uh, yeah, just family religion and, and religion in the home, in in the Christian family, and then also uh, featured on the cover, a man by the name of Thomas Dwight Witherspoon, and I'm going to ask Dr. Wilborn about that man. Now, if you're listening and you've contributed to the journal, because there are 15 pieces beyond the regularly occurring columns, um, if we don't mention your piece... Don't be offended. There's just too much in the journal to really go into great depth in and or about uh, this particular interview. But I do strongly urge and encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to the Confessional Presbyterian, to acquire back copies of, uh, of previous issues, and to grow in your knowledge and understanding and familiarity with the uh, the Confessional Presbyterian theological tradition, because. It's our conviction here at Greenville Seminary that it is, it is the most faithful to, uh, to biblical theology and to, to just the Bible as far as theological traditions are concerned. Without further ado, Dr. Wilborn, would you please tell us a bit about the man on the cover, Thomas Dwight Witherspoon? Let, let me say, each year we, uh, we try to try to offer something of a mini theme. And so typically the picture on the front, uh, which is a nice little piece of art uh, taken from a, an original that we have found or have in some of our personal stashes of pictures. And um, so we have these many themes, and we invite people to contribute toward that, but that's not all we do. There's always other articles that aren't related necessarily. For instance, there's a, a, a very fine article that I had the privilege of editing and working with over the course of a year uh, and having another peer reviewer work on it too to be sure that uh, uh, 
it was all in good order and um, not uh, not doing anything anything untoward uh, with uh, Thomas Chalmers in this case. So we've got Thomas Chalmers and his Westport experiment. How does that relate to the T.D. Witherspoon picture? Well, it doesn't really, other than they were both confessional Presbyterians, Chalmers and Witherspoon. Chalmers cared about families. And Chalmers had a, a big family, and he labored arduously uh, in the parish ministry, and his system is still one to be imitated. Um, so just to let you know, uh, that's our aim is to have a little mini-theme and uh, sometimes that theme runs all the way through. For instance, the year we did Calvin, back for his 500th anniversary, um, when we did uh, Princeton Seminary in, in 1812, 1912, 2012, the 200th anniversary. So um, that's the way we approach it. Witherspoon, in this case, being the man on the, on the front, and a few early articles dedicated uh, to him or some of his his work, um, Witherspoon was a Presbyterian from the 19th century. He uh, studied under James Thornwell at uh, Columbia Theological Seminary, or as you know, to distinguish, we often refer to that as Old Columbia, while it still resided in Columbia, South Carolina, and. Uh, and like a number of the young men that went through Columbia Seminary, they ended up marrying daughters of professors, whether it was a, a, a Leland or whether it was a um, Howe or a Gerardo or a Thornwell. You know, that's happened here at Greenville Seminary a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, it, it tends to. So um, seminaries are a good place to find good and godly wives. And good and godly men. And good and ungodly men, yeah. Uh, Witherspoon had an eye for Nancy Thornwell, uh, Dr. Thornwell's daughter, Nanny as he referred to her, as the family called her. And uh, I always tell this story out at Elmwood Cemetery when we do the tour uh, she's buried on one side of her father. Her mother is buried on the other side of Dr. Thornwell. And uh, it's, a, it's a sad story, but it's a beautiful story as you read about it in uh, B.M. Palmer's Life and Letters of Thornwell. And if you're not familiar with that, do. Make yourself familiar. But here's just a little snippet. Uh, long story short is that she became deathly ill and died uh, on the eve of her marriage to Witherspoon. And her request, one of the last requests, was that she be buried in her wedding gown. And the inscription on the tomb is Nancy Witherspoon, um, not this Witherspoon, but a family relation in South Carolina, Nancy Witherspoon Thornwell. Uh, and then it says, as a bride adorned, for her bridegroom, and that was her way of wishing people to know that she had worn the wedding dress that she had intended to wear with T.D. Witherspoon uh, very shortly, that she would meet her Savior adorned in that as, as, his, as his bride. It evokes for us the, the promise that we as the church will be presented to our bridegroom without spot or wrinkle or blemish on that great day of judgment f accepted by our Savior. Yeah, exactly. And that was her desire, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful story and a beautiful picture of our union with Christ and what he's done for us. So that's a little bit about Witherspoon. Of course, he, he lamented that loss. He mourned it. Uh, he went on to marry and have children, pastored several churches uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, um, in Virginia, but perhaps most notable at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. That came after the conclusion of the war and during the Reconstruction period, which it was a hard time in Memphis. It was, a, it was on the river, and yet there was just 
not much traffic, not much trade. Times were hard. Uh, you read stories about it in the local histories as well as other uh, other offerings of history. Um, it was just a very difficult time in which he labored. Uh, but in this edition of the Confessional Presbyterian, we we have an opening piece which is largely biographical, uh, taken from Francis Beatty. Beatty knew Witherspoon. Beatty had uh, had that acquaintance and uh, friendship through the years. Francis Beatty, of course, would end up teaching at the uh, Presbyterian Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and is buried there in uh, the, the the Rock it's Cave Hill Cemetery, a most beautiful place. And uh, so we have that there for you to uh, to get to know more about the man. Then there's a, a sermon that uh, that uh, was transcribed and and put into form for us to enjoy uh, from Witherspoon uh, that follows the the opening piece about him. Then you have this Christ, his constraining love sermon, which is a really a, a beautiful uh, little collection of his notes as he would have preached them on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was on the, the, the selected text was 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. And the, the interesting thing about all of Chris's work as a publisher is he'll frequently include images of the actual handwritten notes, and that's valuable because, A, you gain a great appreciation for those who labor to actually set them to type that's legible, and, B, you get to see how these how these men wrote back in the day, and, and to think that he actually preached from, from what I'm looking at is amazing because I'd have a really hard time even if I had written it in the first place. Well, and you know, like a, a few years ago, we did a uh, a sermon by Thornwell, uh, and that was from Hebrews. And what I did is I transcribed it, and in that in the sermon notes that are in the South Carolina Library in Columbia, uh, you can read the original as it's there. And where he would make his tr- changes, he might strike through with a pen and reword or change. So what we did is uh, I kept those in but put the strike throughs. And, and so we left it, even though we transcribed it so we could set it to print, we left it just like he had it. And that's uh, actually Chris insists on that whenever we have those kind of occasions so that people can see the progress of thought in a sermon as a minister's working through it and and refining it through the through the through the process of preparation it has historical value and um, for better or for worse preachers today aren't leaving behind a whole lot of that track record or uh, no. or historiography or history of their own writing because we're we're deleting on computers and and rewriting there so you're not seeing all the changes that are made. Uh, before before you talk about your piece on Witherspoon, I, I want to read just a selection from the sermon for the benefit of our listeners, and again, to whet your appetite and maybe uh, encourage you to pick it up yourself. This is uh, just from the head of the sermon. The true people of God in all ages of the church, and especially his earnest and devoted ministers, have been charged by the enemies of the cross with folly, fanaticism, and madness. And while it is true that these charges are ever the result to a considerable extent of a malicious and contentious spirit, it is nonetheless true that there is something in the very nature of the zeal which Christianity inspires that to one unacquainted with its spirit bear the appearance of fanaticism. Zeal is but the natural fervor of the mind in pursuit of some object which it deems worthy of attainment. In itself it possesses no moral character, it is neither essentially right nor essentially wrong, and we are accustomed to justify it solely by the motives by which it is impelled, the ends to which it is directed and the means which it employs. If these be such as commend themselves to us, we approve of the zeal and admire those in whom it appears. But if the ends be unworthy, the means inadequate, or the motives insufficient, we condemn the zeal which enters into such a cause, and we characterize its subjects as enthusiasts, fanatics, or madmen. Now Christianity is essentially a spiritual religion. 
the very principles in which it is grounded, the hope upon which it is built, the ends which it proposes, the means which it employs, motives to which it appeals, the encouragements which it holds out, the reward which it offers, all are alike spiritual. And he continues from there, but just that, that, that last line from his introduction that I read, that uh, gives you a taste of the character of Witherspoon's preaching, and just the character of, of Presbyterian preaching, old-school Presbyterian preaching of the late uh, 19th century. A bit wordy to our ears, but nonetheless profound, intellectually stimulating, engaging the mind with the aim at the heart. And you know, when you read that introduction uh, piece about Witherspoon that uh, Chris has provided us uh, from, from Beatty, uh, one of the things commented about his preaching was that it was not, uh, uh, I don't think this is the word used, but this was the, the gist, not, not particularly exceptional. Uh, he was no Benjamin Morgan Palmer in the pulpit. He was no John Gerardo. He was not a James Thornwell even. And yet he occupied some pretty important pulpits. And you might sit back and think, wow, you know, how does that, how, how would that happen? And I think it largely happens or happened in his case because as you read that and as we talk about the piece that I, I, I wrote, uh, he, he, was, he was a pastor and the people knew he loved them. And so the preaching took on even a greater quality, not so much for the homiletical skill, per, perhaps, or even the delivery and, and all, but just because they knew it. I had a professor years ago that would say to us young boys, your people will put up with a lot of bad preaching if they know you, they love, if they know you love them. And I've heard Dr. Wilborn say that to us a handful of times in the yeah. couple of classes I've taken with him. It's good advice. And I think that's probably the point with Witherspoon is that whether it was in Memphis or in Oxford or in uh, Christianburg, Virginia, or in Charlotte, North Carolina at pastors, pastorates, uh, he quickly left an impression on the people that he loved them. And the, so they loved him, and, and not that they put up with bad preaching, but they they didn't have perhaps one of the greater preachers in their pulpit, but they had a faithful preacher. And after all, that's what we're called to. And I think uh, he's a good example for us in that, of being a good, faithful pastor, preacher. And, uh, and so... Uh, and I think this little book that I'm working with here to put together this little article I wrote uh, just epitomizes that uh, in a lot of ways. The article is called A Children's Book About God's Hesed, T.D. Witherspoon's Children of the Covenant. So well, what's the story behind this book? Who was it written for? What was it written about? Yeah. And, uh, let me say up front, I'm I'm more persuaded now after many years of being familiar with this book and then having reread it freshly as I worked through uh, working on this article uh, that, um, that this little book should be republished. And so I'm, I'm going to probably leave here this afternoon and go sit down and send a couple of emails and see if that's not a, a something that I can pitch to a couple of publishers and, uh, and, and see if that can't be done so that it can be available for people who hear me today, maybe read this piece and say, wow, I really need to read that book. My children need to hear this book read to them. Uh, my teenagers need to read this book. Uh, hopefully that will take place. But uh, here's how this, this book came about. It's called The Children of the Covenant. It was written in the 1870s. He was living in Memphis, just north of Memphis. It was a little community, a railroad crossing. Uh, it's, it's near present-day uh, Millington, which is a military base north of Memphis. And uh, there is a community now located there 
named for a friend of Witherspoon's who was a Presbyterian minister named Andrew Kerr. And the community's name is Kerrsville. Kerrville, yep. And and so uh, Kerr and Witherspoon were good buddies, fellow ministers in the Presbyterian Church U.S., and uh, Kerr had uh, uh, several children. One had died in uh, infancy, just a few months old. And then he had three other children who would, uh, in God's providence, die at young ages, uh, the oldest of the three being uh, a teenager. And what this little book does is just very beautifully tell the story of their faith. So he begins with Andrew Kerr. Junior, Andrew Hart Kerr, and they called him Hart, and he tells about him. And I think one of the most interesting things, these are not hagiographies of these children. He doesn't paint them as, as perfect little cherubs. He, he, he explains them with their warts, but he talks about their faith and how that faith often bubbled up to the surface and was evident in the way they talked in the things they talked about, in the things they enjoyed reading, uh, in the way they occupied their time, the way they enjoyed the Sabbath, uh, worshiping the Lord, resting, enjoying reading, being read to by their parents, and then their, their worship at the end of the Lord's Day. And so he tells this uh, and then recounts... Uh, reminiscent somewhat of B.M. Palmer's lessons uh, from sorrow or lessons of sorrow, uh, the little book called The Broken Home. It's reminiscent of that in some ways. Uh, but he does this with each of the children, and so what we did is we, we, we were able to extract the, the, the photographs from this uh, public domain book so nobody gets upset or thinks, thinks that we've done something uh, wrong, and uh, been able to uh, draw them out and reproduce them here so you can see these these children and their faces and put uh, these names and faces together along with a life story. So basically, Witherspoon tells their story, each child independent of one another, and uh, then concludes with their sickness uh, those days of, of lingering illness, their testimony to others, their, their pleading with their siblings to trust Jesus, uh, that if something like this were to fall upon them, some sort of sickness, that they'd be ready to meet Christ, their Savior. Uh, he recounts the scripture that they wanted read. He recounts the hymns they wanted to sing, uh, before they they passed into the presence of their Savior, and uh, so have a box of Kleenexes uh, there beside you as you read them, uh, each of those chapters, and you'll be greatly edified. And as you see, that's why I said that it's a it'd be a wonderful book for parents to sit down and read to their to their young children. Uh, a Lord's Day afternoon reading and discussion time. But Dr. Wilborn, it might seem objectionable to modern sensibilities to talk so blatantly and so explicitly of death and the possibility of death even in childhood. We don't want to scare our kids. That might be an objection we'd hear. Of course, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm being a little sarcastic. Sure. But seriously, even some of our listeners might be thinking, I would never read this kind of book with my kids. Why is it important? to not just confront these things, but actually to seek out opportunities to put these kinds of stories and accounts in front of our children from a young age. First of all, it's a matter of life and death. And we're talking eternal things here. Uh, none of us are promised a day. Um, uh, we hear often of children dying in, in their youth and in infancy, uh, many of us have had those brushes with our children of, 
of, of uh, being uh, critically sick and, and near death. And uh, B.M. Palmer makes the point with one of his children that in her sickness, he realized the importance of talking with children at the earliest of ages to help them think through this thing called life. And the only way you can talk about things of life is talk about death, that unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes before you die, you will die, uh, so that our children know how to think about those funerals that we go to. Uh, I find it interesting. When I was a child, my parents would take me with them to funerals. And now I do funerals, and people don't generally. There are some exceptions, but generally don't bring their children. And it's the very reason you say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to talk to them about it. Well, you need to learn how to talk to them about it. And books like this give us a vocabulary. Yeah, and, it really does. I mean, obviously the Psalms do, and, and the Bible has accounts of children dying, and, you know, the, the, the epitome of that would be David's unnamed son, born by Bathsheba, who, who dies just, you know, shortly after being born. And so if we don't put those in front of our kids, then we can't expect our children to bear with grace the tragedies that may assail them in God's providence. And just looking at Little Hart's testimony here, he, uh, I mean, this is amazing, and this is what Dr. Wilborn wrote, it will not surprise the readers to know that when taken suddenly by the crippling death hold of cholera in November 1866, he gave a remarkable testimony of the Savior and his saving grace in which he rested. Indeed, in giving testimony to uh, John Bailey Adger and Joseph Ruggles Wilson, he said that he now felt that he would rather go and stay with Christ and with the angels in the world of sin and sorrow. He then requested just a few hours before his death that the hymn Rock of Ages should be sung. Witnesses say he sung with all the gusto he could muster. He then turned to those gathered around him, including many who had been in Memphis for the General Assembly of the PCUS, and urged all not to weep for him, but rather rejoice in the goodness and glory of God who was going to take him from a world of sin and trouble up to himself, where he would very soon be singing with angels, and where he would take his seat in the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Would any of our kids uh, wax eloquent like this on their deathbed? And I don't know if, if this is being elaborated upon by Dr. Witherspoon or not, but I hope my children would at least have this attitude of looking forward to seeing Jesus, knowing that they're going to miss mommy and daddy, but looking forward to being with Christ. Again, I grew up in a household where where we talked a lot about heaven. Sunday nights were often around a dinner table with guests in the church or guest preachers in the church, and that would inevitably be the topic. We don't do that nearly enough now. We talk about the how-tos of life, and that's fine, that's good, that's important, but why not about the who, Christ Jesus, and the the ultimate, and that is to be with him forever and ever, um, to enjoy, you know, this week I've been reading in the catechism on the, the benefits we have, and uh, that's one of those benefits. And so uh, helping them helping them think about it. And we, we live in such a, we do live, I, I, you read that piece and he's lamenting the sinful world that's all around him. Compare Memphis, Tennessee in 1866 to Memphis, Tennessee today, and it would appear probably back then to have been a pretty, much like Charleston at that time, it was called the Holy City. And, um, and yet uh, our children are growing up terribly desensitized to sin because it's so prevalent, it's so available, it's so in our face. It's knit into the warp and woof of our everyday, normal culture, even our routines. I was, uh, we just moved, so we're switching over internet service, and uh, while waiting for stuff to process, the guy on the phone's talking to me about, you know, what, what do you kids do, you know, what do they do, and... 
he said, you know, do they just, you know, they watch YouTube videos of, you know, other kids having fun and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, I mean, my kids play outside all the time and read books and occasionally we'll watch like a silly video of a cat together after dinner, after family worship and whatever. Just got to thinking, you know, the default is, and I'm not building up my own parenting, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the default is for most households, especially outside of the covenant community, uh, to just turn on the boob tube and let the kids zone out watching, you name it. And uh, and that's, that's a lamentable reality when, in fact, our children are capable of profound thought and devotion like we see in the Kerr children. Now, I want I want our listeners to want to read about Hart's sisters and and not not just get everything from us right now. So let's move on and talk about some of the other articles uh, as as interesting as the work of T.D. Witherspoon is. Well, let me say two things before we move to the other articles. Go One ahead. is uh, back to this this topic of talking to our children about about heaven where our God is enthroned and where our Savior is enthroned. Um, talking about the things of the faith, this, um, it reminded me as we were talking here, years ago I preached a sermon. It, it, this was in the 19, uh, oh, about 90. Michael Jordan was the LeBron James of that era in the NBA. This is before you went to Philadelphia? This or? before I moved to Philadelphia. And I said in this particular sermon how that we should, uh, we should be presenting our children, the Lord Jesus Christ, in such a way that they knew. And this was a sermon particularly directed toward fathers. I was preaching from uh, the high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ praying to his father. And I said, you know, we should present the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way, and we should that, that our, children, our children know that he's, he's bigger in life than Michael Jordan. And you know, as I preached, I noticed this a little conversation take place, as you do when you're preaching, between a young father and, a, and his son. And I, I see their faces now. I remember them. They've grown up both to be godly men, and this young man is now a godly young Christian man. So when the service was over, they're exiting, they come by me, and I noticed red eyes in the father. Obviously, he had cried. And I said, is everything okay? He said, yeah. We have to change the way we, we talk at home. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, I don't know if you saw, but, and I won't say his name because they, who knows, they may listen to their former pastor. But he said, he looked up at me and he said, Daddy, is Jesus really greater than Michael Jordan? And he said, we have to change the way we think and talk around our house because I want my son to know Jesus is greater He's not just different. He's greater. And obviously he did because his son, this young man who thought Michael Jordan was greater than Jesus, at that time anyway, now knows better and believes better and is probably teaching his children better. That's why we talk about this stuff. And we don't wait to, well, let's wait till X point. X point may not come, folks. Uh, but besides that, if you wait till X point, and they're still alive, you're robbing from Christ. You're robbing his glory from him in your children hearing you talk about him and talk about what he saves us from. And uh, so... That's right. Uh, the last two things I'd say about the book and my piece is, and I won't say more than this is, the last two chapters after he gives these biographical sketches, beautifully written, One's addressed to the children. And so this book was really written, and that's the reason I titled my piece a children's book. It's really a children's. It's a book written to children. Now, I realize readers today are going to read it and say, 
whoa, this is this is high English right here. Well, it was 19th century. It was the it was the Romantic era, and these people had a had a really great command of the English language, and and that was true from bottom to top of educated people. And so, um, don't let that put you off. You read it on through, and those last two chapters, particularly, he addresses children, and he calls them to the same faith that these three Kerr children had. And he calls them not only to a love for Christ, but he calls them to a love for the church. And that's something that's so missing today. And then the fourth, uh, uh, or the fifth chapter rather, is addressed to the parents, to the parents who are reading this, and how that they should be uh, desiring and how they can, how they can, it's sort of a how-to book of, okay, here's how you can be a parent to your children like Andrew Hart Kerr was to his children. And we'll pray for God's providence and his mercy that your children can embrace faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the same way. And so it's, it's just a, it's a marvelous, it's a beautiful little book. So as I've talked about it, I'm now convinced I'm going to leave and go send some emails and, and get a publisher drummed up for this thing, get it back in the, in the mainstream. Uh, you know, there are a number of other articles. We don't have time to touch on them. Uh, one by our own colleague here at the seminary, Dr. Ben Shaw, which is, uh, is, a, is a really good piece. If any of you out there know Dr. Shaw, you know that it's not a long piece. Um, it's not particularly lengthy, so it won't take you long to read it, but it's, it's really fine. It's on, it's on exegesis, and it's about some rethinking of how we do our exegesis and what some of the common commitments are out there um, and how they may not be leading us in our reading uh, and study of the scriptures in the right way. It's a it's a it's a really nice little uh, piece that would be good for every pastor certainly to read, but elders as well. And then the last piece that I want to mention, I guess I've already mentioned the the Thomas Chalmers piece. That's selfish because I have a have a fondness for Chalmers myself, but that piece by Michael Ives uh, is a is a really quality piece on Chalmers, and I think that'd be good for every church, every every group of elders and deacons to read, to give them some ideas for their local ministries. But the last one I'd like to mention uh, is uh, the last article just before the reviews and responses, Images of Christ and the Vitals of the Reform System. This piece by Harrison Perkins, who's a uh, a minister now serving in the Free Church of Scotland. And uh, it's quite good in that he he works us through the historical and theological reasons why the Reformed faith, our Reformed fathers, have always considered the making of images and therefore the worship of images as striking at the vitals of our religion, that it's not something that can just, you know, it's not just an appendage to the Westminster body of doctrine, but it's, it's part and parcel of the, of the saving message. And uh, he talks about how uh, to grant the making of images uh, strikes at the doctrine of Scripture, and how many times have you heard people say, well, you know, we need pictures in our literature, in our Bibles, so that our children can understand that Jesus is a, was a real man. And so Harrison says here, right, or Harrison Perkins rather says rightly, uh, I think that uh, that's to call into question the sufficiency of Scripture. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the preaching of the Word. And to say that we can't expect our children to grasp this thing that Jesus took on humanity just because the Bible teaches it, they need a picture to show it to them. 
He says that strikes at the sufficiency of Scripture, and he goes into greater argument than that. He talks about the whole, um, the whole role of Christ um, and, and Christ leaving with us something that people were to look to, the one image of himself that we are given, and that's the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. and how that if we say we need images uh, will affect the way we view the Lord's Supper as well. And Same so, for those who say we need drama in worship. Well, we have that in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would encourage pastors, uh, some of you listening may have said, well, I don't agree with that. Well, read the paper, and if you'd like to write a response, we'd be happy to consider it. Uh, but uh, it's a really well-put-together piece. It's historical, as I said, uh, drawing a lot of historical documentation in as well as uh, as good theological uh, exercise uh, here as well. So uh, I would encourage that that piece particularly, I, I would say, uh, you know, I often say about books that I've written, introductions for reprints or new publications, that the introduction alone is worth the price of the book. Well, this article is certainly, uh, I think, worth the price of uh, getting this this particular year's subscription. You know, for a journal on historical theology and, uh, to a lesser extent, biblical theology from the Reformed and Presbyterian perspective, this is an eminently practical uh, journal that's published every year. These articles and even our conversation today hopefully will benefit pastors, elders, deacons, lay people, seminary students, uh, just interested folks, as they think about what it means to live as a body of Christ. You know, it, it, it's a, there's a reason why the Confessional Presbyterian Journal is subtitled A Journal for Discussion of Presbyterian Doctrine and Practice. It's because you cannot separate the two, and there's going to be points of application in, in each and every article that you read. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and don't forget the reviews. Uh, we always have a number of uh, books reviewed, current books, uh, and so we have a number of those this time. And it's uh, a number of uh, folks that uh, contribute for us at different times. And I would one last thing. Uh, this is not. Uh, this this is a this is a journal that uh, we take take very seriously the responsibility we have uh, to produce articles that aren't just uh, uh, individual, um, shall we say, soapboxes or pet peeves. And so for that reason, we, we farm these out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm Ben Shaw's friend, and I actually heard him give the address that ends up being this article for us. And so I invited him, please put it in, in words and, and get it to us. Uh, so I obviously liked it. But we then sent it to an Old Testament biblical theologian scholar to read it and give his interaction. He wrote his comments, his, his likes, his dislikes, his suggestions, we sent them back to Dr. Shaw. He made those revisions, interacted with those things that were said, and it made it a better piece. Uh, and so that's the way we do with m- most all the articles. They're uh, they're run through a number of a number of uh, stages before they get to this point of being published. Well, we certainly appreciate your labor of love for the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. You know, it's not like Dr. Wilborn sits at home twiddling his thumbs wondering what to do. He's the pastor of a a relatively large PCA congregation in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and a, a relatively historic congregation at this point, too, as well as making the, the trek down here every other week to teach courses at Greenville Seminary. So he's not without things to do, but he does believe that this is a really important project, and that's evidenced by the time he spends on it, the energy he spends on it. And just so you know, the authors don't get paid to write for the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. I mean, we, we all get a couple of free issues uh, of the particular issue that we're published in. At least You was, did? 
I was told. I was told I'm getting two in the mail <laughs> yeah. for uh, for the piece that I wrote. But on the whole, uh, that's not the motivation that that drives the authors. Rather, it's a pastoral motivation. It's a, a motivation to engage with discourse and try to unearth uh, useful things that might not have been observed or said in the past. Um, before we close, I do want to give Dr. Wilborn an opportunity to invite our listeners to join him for the Presbyterian Church History class in January. Please give us the details, the, the, the dates, if you know off the top of your head, and what's going to happen, and how listeners can be involved and see some of these places that we've talked about, um, you know, Nanny Thornwell's uh, gravesite and, and First Presbyterian Church, Columbia, as well as uh, the locations in Charleston. Well, thanks. I'll be brief on that. But uh, the class is January 14th through the 18th. That's a Monday through Friday. And uh, so the first three days are just full of lecture. Uh, I do try to use... It's more exciting than that. It's not just full of lecture. Well, it is. It is full of lecture. I I use a lot of pictures and stuff to try to keep everybody moving and... uh, (laughs) And we have some stimulated conversation. Uh, and then on Thursday morning, uh, we pick up uh, our, our bags and we, we, we meet at 8.30 at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And there we spend the morning. We go over to University of South Carolina. We take that beautiful walk. You've done that. We walk through the horseshoe, the historic horseshoe, where... Uh, so many have passed, and we we, uh, we we have the privilege there of seeing a number of archival materials uh, from Thornwell, from Girado, and others, just to see uh, some of the some of the historical items that are left from their ministry. Um, we go to. A number of locations in Columbia, including the Elmwood Cemetery. Uh, we finished there at William Charles Robinson's gravesite, who's the last of the old school Presbyterians at Columbia Theological Seminary, dying in uh, uh, in the in the twentieth century, latter part. And uh, and then we we go down and we see the oldest Presbyterian church building in the South. On John's Island, I talk about the history of that. Um, then we land uh, Friday morning. We do all day long in Charleston. Uh, part of that's a walking tour, and we see historic Presbyterian locations. Some are not any longer Presbyterian-occupied, but nevertheless, those folks are kind and generous to let me in and and uh, are always fun to see, and some of uh, Good friends in Charleston. One is a Reformed Episcopal Church, pastored by uh, just a, a godly man, Pastor Willie Hill. And uh, then the last stop is the old Glebe Street Presbyterian property that is now uh, Mount Zion AME. And my friends there, uh, Alfonso Brown and Hezekiah Kithcart. And so I always get to end the day having supper with them. And uh, and talking, and uh, they've been sweet to me through the years. I've been invited to do a couple of their anniversary celebrations at Mount Zion. That's always a, a, a great joy for me and a privilege uh, uh, that I get to do. But uh, for those who are listening, if you if you can sit in on the class the whole week, they're open. We'll work out something for you, auditing or however you want to approach it. If you can't do that, but you'd like to do the tour, we welcome that too. We often have people, sometimes several, who join us at 8.30 on Thursday morning in Columbia and then stay with us through the day Thursday and Friday. Um, So feel free to join us. There's no charge for the tour. All you'd be out are your expenses for, for transportation, for food, and for for a night or two of housing in uh, Columbia and Charleston. It's uh, And by the way, if you're thinking it's January, I don't know, that's the best time to go to Charleston and Columbia. Humidity is not, and that's a really good thing. 
in Columbia and Charleston is not to have the humidity. And the temperatures are really nice, usually in the 60s, sometimes up to 70. Two Januarys ago, the temp was 80 degrees in Columbia and Charleston for those two days we were out. It was just spectacular. If it rains, it's usually a light rain, so just bring an umbrella, you'll be fine. And Dr. Wilborn is a notorious foodie, so he knows where to take <laughs> the the tour attendees uh, for meals. And oh, we eat well. Yeah, you, you do eat well. I've, I've done the tour in January. I'm looking forward to doing it again some August uh, when we have an iteration of the course that specifically or particularly focuses on 19th century American Presbyterian theology, not just in the South, but in, in all of, all of uh, the United States at the time. And, uh, and it's just a really valuable, it's a special time. That's how I put it after I, did, uh, I took it the first time through. I said, wow, what a special class that was, and I don't know of anything else like it at any other seminary, though I would think Westminster could capitalize on the model and, and do something similar up there in the Philadelphia area. Or Princeton could do it, uh, you know. I know. Actually, I think Princeton has done history tours. I'm sure that's qualitatively different than, than what we do. But in any case, Dr. Wilborn, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks we commend for me. the Confessional Presbyterian to our listeners. And if you need more information about it, I believe it is cpjournal.com, if I'm not mistaken. So www.cpjournal.com for ordering information, for information on back issues, and even for some for some free articles that are posted there for the benefit of the broader public. We thank you for tuning in. Until next time, God bless you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.